Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Um, my guest today is attorney Alan Cohn at Steptoe Law Firm. Alan, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Good. And uh, Alan and his firm are going to be coming to the uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference in February in Dallas. And they're going to be talking about all kinds of legal aspects of crypto tokens. We may talk about ICO regulation, taxation, uh, criminality, and legality. As it uh, as it surrounds the whole ecosystem, but um, Alan, can you talk first? What, so, since you decided to work in this area of law, any case law coming out that um, people should be aware of that's going to affect the industry that's important? Thanks, Richard, and thanks again for having me on the on the podcast. I'm happy to be here and, and looking forward to the conference. Um, I think that the most interesting things going on in this world right now are are in the regulatory space. Where this summer, in particular, we've seen a whole spate of regulation and uh, regulatory pronouncements guidance documents, investigative reports, indictments come out across kind of four aspects of cryptocurrencies and crypto tokens, which is kind of the cryptocurrency and tokens as currency, as commodities or derivatives, as securities, and of course, the, the taxation. And I think that's really where where the most interesting activity has been. Within each of those elements, let's I guess let's just step through all four. Let's talk first about taxation. You know, the IRS had, had declared that crypto tokens were essentially uh, real estate-esque. I guess they were, uh, you know, commodities they tend to be taxed as such, but Recently, they're saying that perhaps transactions under $600 may be exempt from that kind of tax. Yeah. So back in 2014, uh, the IRS issued a notice, a notice out to taxpayers saying that virtual currency was going to be treated as property as opposed to currency for tax purposes. And that's, that wasn't really unforeseen. The foreign currencies are treated as, as property for tax purposes by the IRS. Uh, but it inhibited in, in many ways uh, the ability for kind of the, the virtual currency, cryptocurrency world to expand to really a, an easy way to conduct business and to engage with merchants to buy products, things of that nature. In the fall of 2016, the Treasury Department's own Inspector General for Tax Administration issued a report, though, saying, well, it's great that the IRS issued this notice, but they haven't really done anything since then. There's no overall virtual currency strategy. There's no additional guidance on virtual currency. What, what is the IRS doing? And, and I think that really prompted the IRS to start to look at this area a little more closely and uh, to begin to act. And that's, that's really, we think, what prompted the the summons that the IRS issued to Coinbase, uh, to, to the cryptocurrency mm. exchange, 
uh, back in November 2016, seeking essentially all information about its customers and activities. The IRS has narrowed that summons since the issued, but it it still represents this challenge that the IRS made a pronouncement about how you would treat virtual currency, but there's been nothing since then to really say, well, how do you practically do that? You referenced uh, the new piece of legislation that was introduced uh, introduced in the House that would create an exemption under $600 for transactions conducted in, in virtual currencies from from basic capital gains tax on the on the gains that right. you you might have realized on your virtual currency before you try to go spend it, which would create a, a taxable event. That that bill has to get through the House and then the Senate has to be signed by the president. So it's it's got some it's got some hurdles to get over. But that's one indication of the type of thing that's going to need to to happen now in order to kind of evolve the, the, the tax approach to, to virtual currency. Any other insights into the Treasury Department and the IRS on where they're thinking of going with things? You know, I think we have seen uh, an inclination by the IRS to really look at these issues, to see virtual currency as something other than an oddity and more as something that's, that's in the, the marketplace and that they're going to need to wrestle with. That said, I think there's a lot of, of learning and education and, and figuring out that uh, that they're going to need to do and that they, I think we see them, them wanting to do in order to figure out how to best approach uh, kind of virtual currency as an asset, as an asset class. Money transmission laws and in the individual states in the United States and, and other countries uh, going in different directions, some going strict, some not even addressing it. What, what do you think is going to happen in the U.S. in particular in regards to money transmission and bit license-esque type legislation coming from some of the states? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this is an area where the United States got out ahead of the issue. 2013 and 2014, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is actually an agency of the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, which regulates uh, money services business businesses and money transmission activities under the Bank Secrecy Act. You know, they came out and said, look, virtual currency are, are currencies. And so you don't need to do anything more if you're handling virtual currency than look at our guidance around currencies to understand what your obligations may or may not be. And although those that led to you know, regulatory compliance activities that many in the industry weren't particularly happy with, it did create a certain amount of regulatory certainty. And that then allowed people to innovate against that, understanding where the regulatory boundaries would be. What you saw this summer was a really, I think, the outgrowth of an issue that had been that had been growing and that got attention in a in a congressional hearing in June, which is that it's not the U.S. registered virtual currency exchanges that should be of concern to people, particularly if they're thinking about ca- uh, countering terrorism financing or other types of concerns about illegal use of of currency. But it's really the unregulated foreign exchanges that U.S. authorities and others should be most concerned about. And this is a theme that was stressed by uh, the industry and people had come out of the law enforcement agencies in a hearing before uh, a House subcommittee back in June. And so over the summer, what you saw was FinCEN, that agency within the Department of the Treasury, assessing a civil monetary penalty of over $110 million uh, against BTCE, the cryptocurrency exchange, and a $12 million penalty against uh, Alexander Vinnick, the primary individual behind BTCE. And BTCE and, and Vinnick were 
you know, uh, were indicted on the same day and Vinick was arrested. And really that action was grounded in that idea that if you're going to service U.S. customers, you must register with FinCEN and you must follow U.S. anti-money laundering rules. You must have a compliance program and it must meet certain standards. And it doesn't matter if you're located overseas or offshore. If you're servicing U.S. customers, you really you, you need to engage in those compliance activities really to plug that particular hole in the of virtual currencies. And so I think from a federal level, it was an interesting kind of next step to see, you know, from a domestic perspective, you know, a certain amount of confidence in the exchanges and others who are registered as money services businesses with FinCEN and carrying out compliance activities and really focusing on some of the, the offshore entities that don't. At the state level, I think you still see a continued wrestling with what's the best approach to virtual currencies. Regulation at the state level uh, for entities handling virtual currency. And of course, I think all of your listeners either know of or have their own opinions, their own strong opinions about the bit license. I think that it did serve as something of a cautionary tale for other states in terms of wading into this area too, in too heavy-handed a manner and in and creating regula- regulations or a regulatory construct that was just so cumbersome that only those companies ready to invest a tremendous amount in the the process of applying, you know, would be able to to successfully pursue the licensing. I think most states have now have said that I don't think that's exactly the right way that we want to go. What we want to do is issue issue guidance in one way or the other about how we're going to view virtual currencies, blockchain, crypto tokens, et cetera. And so I think you see states like Washington State becoming more aggressive in terms of um, what they expect of companies handling virtual currency. And I think you see other states, whether that's Nevada, whether that's that's others, either interpreting their, their virtual currency or their currency laws to, um, to give more room for virtual currencies or, or to simply say virtual currencies are not covered by our state laws um, or to make other pronouncements around how either cryptocurrency or blockchain will be treated within their state. Why wouldn't uh, FinCEN say, look, we're handling it and we want to keep this, we want to have federal guidance and rules, not a patchwork of different laws in different states? Or do they have really no say in that? I mean, why would the states even do this? It's not so much that FinCEN would have that authority. It's Congress that in passing legislation would say that we do or we do not preempt state laws on the same subject. And the anti-money laundering rules or statutes have grown up in such a way that uh, the federal law is not meant to preempt state law on this issue. So it's not as if this is a new area to be regulated and we're starting from a clean sheet of paper for virtual currencies. Uh, There's there's a regime in place for how uh, money transmission is regulated at both the federal and the state level. Um, And so what you see now is really the fitting in of rules for virtual currency on top of that. I mean, it's possible that Congress could come in and say that um, you know, the federal money transmitter or money services business rules preempt those at the state level, but that would be breaking with uh, the way that currency transmission laws are, are handled for other types of currency transactions. And there are legitimate interests that different states have in regulating car- or not currency transmissions within their states. And, th- and that's, I think, what Congress has recognized in not preempting. Um, and that's why you have the, the patchwork of both federal and state regulation. And I guess it sounds like it's going to continue that way. I would think so on the at least on the money transmission money services business from that perspective yes I think we can expect that there will continue to be an, an evolving set of rules at the federal level that are rooted in the pronouncements that FinCEN has already made combined with a continued evolution at the state level 
around virtual currency regulation licensing, but you'll still see states going in different directions and, and creating different types of, re- of requirements. And now the most uh, active part of it is uh, regulating tokens, or some of them at least, as securities versus commodities versus currencies. It seems like lately are talking about this. So what's your outlook there? Yeah. And in fact, it's, it, and of course, as you know well, this is an aspect and a, a characteristic of cryptocurrencies is that it's not exclusive. In the United States, cryptocurrencies can be simultaneously a currency, a security, a derivative property, because cryptocurrencies can have the characteristics of each of those asset classes at the same time. Um, in a sense, you know, cryptocurrencies are, are almost their own asset class that have all of those different characteristics, but may ultimately require kind of their own approach to, to regulation. The securities area is interesting. A lot of discussion this summer. The SEC in the U.S. finally beginning to speak on on initial coin offerings and token issuances, first saying what we all thought they would say anyway, which is that if you have a token that's meant to represent equity in the company, and they used the the distributed autonomous organization, the DAO is an example of that, then that's going to be a security. And you're going to need to follow uh, securities laws in terms of how you market those tokens. And there are standardized securities laws. There are exemptions for low dollar crowdfunding for accredited investors. But if you're selling a token as equity, as either a share in a company or as a, or as a representative of a share of profits, and that's really the principal driver of, of what the token is, and you're really going to need to treat that as a security. On um, other categories of, of tokens, particular utility tokens, what is, what's commonly referred to as utility tokens. And so what you see instead from the, from the SEC, um, not in the Dow investigative report, but in the investigative uh, or the investor bulletin on ICOs, is much more of a tacit acknowledgement that ICOs are happening. They may not fall under the guidance or the, or the same kind of logic trail that you saw in the Dow investigative investigative report. But if you are approaching an ICO as an investor, and I think you can also read it as if you are a proponent of an ICO as a company, here are the different disclosure elements that you really need to meet. And in particular, you must disclose what are the characteristics of the token? What rights do you get by purchasing it? What obligations? What rights do you not get? By, and really focusing in first and foremost on the disclosure obligation, as I think they wrestle with what's the best approach from a regulatory perspective to utility tokens themselves. Now, around the world, you're seeing kind of two kinds of, of pronouncements. You saw in Canada uh, and you saw in Singapore a similar type of approach, which is a non-official pronouncement, so not a new regulatory, not a new regulation, but rather just guidance or statements from the from the regulators. And and uh, um, and you see that, saw the same thing in Hong Kong uh, as well. Is you know a statement like the SECs that look some ICO tokens, some crypto tokens sold in ICO are going to be considered securities because of the different characteristics of the token. And if they are, they're going to be subject to relevant securities laws within this. You saw other countries, though, China being most notable, but South Korea also, and and Russia, making pronouncements that are much more strident. China coming out and saying, we're not going to draw those kinds of distinctions. Chinese law, and they're not permitted, and 
ICOs that have been conducted within China need to be wound down and the, uh, the money paid needs to be refunded. In South Korea, you see you don't, it's not quite as strong, but in terms of unwinding, but um, the same kind of pronouncement that you know, ICOs violate applicable statutes and regulations. I think that what you're going to see is kind of a meeting in the middle of those two things. I think at the end of the day, the phenomenon is so pronounced. Uh, there have been so many ICOs. There have been a number, a good number of ICOs where the underlying fundamentals around, you know, this is a token with utility, that is its purpose. There's enough of those that I think at the end of the day, there's going to, there will likely be, should be a regulatory recognition of what those are and how those should be treated. At the same time, I think that uh, there are a lot of ICOs that have less, have more questionable foundations and fundamentals. Uh, and I think you're going to see those be the subject of enforcement actions in, in not only in places like China or South Korea, but also in, in the U.S., Canada and Singapore, et cetera. Where I think you'll, where the arc is most interesting is where do the securities regulators in each of these countries and others ultimately come down around that question of, of well-formulated uh, utility token. How will those be treated? Will they be simply seen as securities, as you see from kind of the current Chinese government pronouncement? Will they potentially not be considered securities? Um, and fall outside, completely outside of, um, of securities regulation at all? Or will there be some middle ground where there be some, there need to be some new approach to utility tokens as essentially a, a different type of asset class that's requiring a different type of approach by the securities regulators? Do you see, um, I've, I've said this before, but you know, 20, 25 years ago, the internet was um, its own world. And I saw it starting to merge slowly with the quote unquote real world, you know, legally and and every other aspect. And now I'm seeing the same thing with, with crypto tokens, but much faster. So do you, do you think it's a good thing that all this regulation is being proposed? And where do you think we'll end up? Do you think, again, it's a good thing because once regulators understand these things and the way they want to understand them, people will know where they can navigate and how this will evolve. And we won't have these these flare-ups and this, this drama and this you know on-off of exchanges and ICOs and all that. No, I mean, I think that's right. I think that if you look at the first round of regulatory pronouncements in 2013 and 2014 from the from FinCEN, from the IRS, you know, they sent and then in, and then the first enforcement actions off 2014, 2015, those sent shockwaves through the industry. Um, and they were greeted very negatively at the time, but they've led to, you know, the, the regulatory certainty that they've provided has led to a tremendous amount of innovation in the space and probably contributes to the speed at which the evolution of the technology is able to move today. What I think we're seeing now is a natural next evolution of regulatory guidance around this type of technology. And it will, again, send shockwaves through the industry. It will upset certain ways of doing business that have, that have been put into place, but it will also, I think, likely usher in just even more innovation because of the certainty uh, that gets created. But it does place a premium on the regulators acting in a manner that's meant to establish certainty and to provide the clear rules on the road. If it's done in a kind of a haphazard fashion, if it's done you know, heavily from an enforcement perspective and not from a, an engagement with industry um, and trying to lay down rules that make sense, it has the potential to to disrupt the beneficial type of innovation um, as opposed to creating certainty that will spur that kind of innovation. Well, very good. Well, if anything, it's uh, it's, it's interesting and never a dull moment. So Absolutely. It's like fascinating. You guys are, are busy 
the things and will continue to be so. Yes, it's a fascinating area. It's, it's, it's a great area to be helping innovators and others figure out how to really take advantage of this environment in a, in a manner that is beneficial to the companies, beneficial to the individuals and the entities that get to participate, platforms and with the technology, and I think beneficial overall. Well, great. Well, Alan, we're looking forward to having you at the conference and some of your other um, associates at the firm. And what, uh, for listeners, whether they are contemplating an ICO, they have a company, they're seeking guidance, or they just have questions, what's the best way for them to get in touch with your firm? Send us a note. You can reach me at A-C-O-H-N at steptoe.com, S-T-E-P-T-O-E, or find us on the web, on the internet at www.steptoe.com. Great. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you coming. Yeah, thanks so much. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.